Hi, I'm Maria Stolger and welcome to episode 117 of Talking with Painters. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I've had the privilege to talk with Australian painters about their lives and art for over five years now. And you can hear those conversations on this podcast, but you can also see videos of those artists on the Talking with Painters YouTube channel, where there are now over 150 videos. Most of them are short videos, usually only about two to three minutes long, which I've taken of the artists in their studios or in the galleries, and you can find them by going to YouTube and searching Talking with Painters. And today, I'm very excited to be bringing you my conversation with Julian Ma. I've been in awe of Jules's work ever since I saw his portrait of Daniel Johns in the 2015 Archibald Prize. I was drawn in by the colour and how the incredible translucence of that painting somehow captured what we know of the nature of the sitter. And I think it has a lot to do with the way Jules handles oil paint, something we talk a lot about in this episode. Since then, his work has gone in even more exciting directions, especially most recently where his landscapes and abstractions have explored new territory. And Jules came to practice as a full-time artist via another very different career, and you're going to be hearing all about that as well. Jules has had over 25 solo shows across Australia and internationally. His work has been included in multiple international art fairs and he's been hung in many prestigious art prizes, including the Archibald, the Wynn, the Glover, Doug Moran, Shirley Hannon, Salon de Refusé, Need I Go On. I'm recording this a few days before the opening of Jules's show at the fabulous Yavuz Gallery in Sydney, which is this Thursday, the 18th of November, 2021. It's called The Small Hours, and I highly recommend you see it if you're in Sydney, because there's nothing quite like seeing a Julian Maher work up close. We recorded this episode in Jules's studio in Sydney, surrounded by absolutely stunning recent works, and you can see all the works we talk about on the website talkingwithpainters.com. As usual, I started at the beginning by asking Jules what he remembered of art as a child. Oh yeah, I mean, I've, I've for my earliest memory, I've, I've been around my brothers and sisters and mum painting and drawing. Um, like I grew up in, I'm one of six kids and mum's a really good artist and was a graphic designer and we just always had paper and pencils and paints. We had an easel each, I think, when, and we had a room in our house that was just a wet room just for painting, making a whole lot of mess and I think, you know, this was back in the 80s and stuff, there wasn't a lot of TV or internet or anything yeah. and we all drew and painted it a lot. I mean, I, started, I think I started using oils when I was 13 or 14. Oh my God. So who would have introduced you to that? Um, I started going to art school after school um, down at Ashton when I was a teenager on the, during all the holidays. I just loved it. On Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, and Saturday afternoons after sport. Yeah, so I just started drawing like all the anatomy stuff down there, even as a kid. So your mum was an artist? Yeah. So she... She's never exhibited, but she's really, ta- like, really talented. She would always encourage us and um, give us hints and... You know, just really supportive, very supportive, which is why I was able to go down to art school. So she must have been the one that, inter- that introduced oh, yeah. you to Julian. Dad can't even draw a fucking stick figure, you know. <laughs> he is, in some ways, that's often more supportive when someone's so outside the field. Yeah. No matter, what, no matter how bad it is, he's a bit like the father of, of the castle, you know. Like, <laughs> Dad, I dug another hole. He's like, that's great, mate, you know. You need, you need those figureheads in your life as well. That is so true, I reckon. You know, someone who it doesn't matter to them about yeah, they were a great team in some way because mum would always be looking at giving advice on how to make it better, which you need to have that eye, that critical eye of like, where's the weak point, where's the weak passage in the work? And then you need the other parent just to make sure that you keep your confidence up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And so I don't need to ask you if you did art at, at high school because I think, I think I heard somewhere that you topped the state in the really, HSC in I had, art. I had a really good art department and a great art teacher, Vicky Denning. And Mark Wilde, and they, it's funny, out of our two or three years, there's so many artists have come out of it. Like Oliver Watts and Jasper Knight, Matthew Kentman, um, Dave Tay's lecturer over in Singapore. They, that was a, there was a period in my high school that produced um, a lot of professional artists and curators. And um, my teacher sat my parents down and said, he needs to be a painter. Really? Yeah, which is, you know, from a private school and all that kind of thing. And, um, 
that was a big, they really believed in, in, um, in the power of sort of following that as a profession mm, and mm. that it was a reality, it could be a reality and you could make it happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had good artists in residence as well. Like I had every Wednesday afternoon for six months, I painted with Philip Wolfhagen. When he really? Was, when he was like 35. What? I know. I know. And I was 16. I know. Oh, my God. What, so what, that, you must have learned so much. Did you learn I don't know if I learned anything. The only thing I really learned was that it was possible. Some people managed to carve out an existence by, by um, making artwork, which for a teenager is just, it, it's, until you see someone actually do it, it's all a bit of a dream. It's still yeah. a bit of a dream. Yeah. But that, that was the most powerful thing is actually seeing, um, like I think they had Robert Hannaford come back and see people who actually can eke out an existence by making um, paintings. Yeah. Uh, that was really powerful. That stayed with me always. That I'm, hey, I suppose if, if you work hard enough and um, I'm incredibly lucky, you could be one day making paintings in your studio as going to work. Yeah, that, I think that's really important to actually be able to see some. But it's like a, having a role model. You can see yourself being in that position. Yeah. But interestingly, you didn't do that after high school. So can you tell me what happened after the HSC? Um, like I think like most kids, I just wanted to do something pretty safe and secure because um, I think I'd gone to speak to a counsellor and he said, um, if you go into art school after five years after graduating, only 1% are practising artists. I didn't like those odds. <laughs> you know, my balls weren't big enough back then. And I wasn't stupid enough to chase my dreams when I was 18. You know, it's a big call. And in some ways, yeah. I think it was, I, I never regret anything I've done because one thing always feeds into the next. And in some ways, coming to art as a profession in my late 20s was better because I'd sort of lived a lot. I'd grown up a lot and matured a lot and I was a lot, probably a lot more driven and having done medicine and worked in a hospital, done night shifts in emergency in Wollongong and dealt with those type of kind of pressures and spaces. Mm. Um, walking into a studio was, um, I, never, I never took it for granted. And I think coming at it later made me a lot more driven and dedicated. Had I gone into it at 18 to art school, I don't know whether I'd still be here, you know? Yeah. I may have, there's all that kind of um, pathways in life. And I kind of, um, quite happy that I came out a bit later because it's not an easy road. Yeah. So I sort of went, okay, I don't know what I want to do. I'll go and do medicine. And I quit medicine halfway through, went to art school over in Italy when I was 21, to a very traditional art school over there. What was that like? I was a 21-year-old in Florence. It was awesome. What are you talking about? <laughs> and it was very traditional, wasn't it? It's one yeah, of those It's called the Italian method where you sort of sight-size everything. Yeah. And yeah. You spent, I spent a month on a, on a life drawing from, you know, every morning on the same goddamn position. It was, yeah. I started from getting... From life. From life. Wasn't it? So it wasn't casts? Or no, no, no. I refused. I couldn't. Yeah. I was like, I've done the cast. I wanted, to, I wanted to learn how to paint there. Yeah. So, I suppose, so that sight-size method, that's where you draw to scale, basically. So, you're, so the figure on the, or the bust on the page or the head on the page is the same size as the person. Yeah, so you normally paint it from 10 steps back, walk up, make a mark, walk back, check it, flick back and forward, back and forward, back and forward. So it's kind of just training, training the eye. Yeah. Do, do you think you got anything out of that? Do, what do you think about that sort of approach? <sighs> I got, the thing I got out of it was that I didn't want to do it. And, <laughs> but I think, but seriously, the thing I got out of it was just um, basic paint, like thinking about um, how sort of Rubens and the really traditional portrait painters built layers in order to give the feeling of true flesh and the glow of faces. And so there, there were things that I learned there that I hadn't learned in, in Australia that I still carry with me today. I still when, I still, when I make a portrait, I fall back on those few, there are only like five take-home messages, but that's all you need to get out of that experience. Yeah. Like don't put white in shadows on a face, otherwise it's going to go chalky and you're going to lose the luminosity. So they, it was all about building up glazes on shadow parts out of translucent paint. So I learned what paints translucent, the raw sienna and all that kind of rose matter and stuff. Mm. And it's all about taking time and building them up and stripping back each day to let it build, 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 and then come in 
when all thing, when the thing's kind of cooking with all your heavy, strong whites and and highlights at the very end. So there's that traditional way of painting portraits. In some ways, I've just that was my base, and the way I paint a portrait is very different now. But it's still those principles of using the linen behind as the luminosity, not white paint. That's really interesting, actually, because. Uh I think a lot of people like the idea of going to one of those schools and learning. You know, I mean, people who are interested in representational work, especially in portraiture and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and uh, there's sort of like the tuition. It's hard to find good tuition and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. I remember arguing with the head of the school once. Well, not arguing, but just saying, look, I want to draw a wobbly line and I want energy in my line drawing. Because I, I was drawing a lot into sketchbooks back then. And, and I was just, why, why does it have to be? Why do we have to copy? We're just copying. What are we doing? Just take a goddamn photo. But I remember him just saying, it doesn't, what you're doing now is actually just training your eye rather than making artwork, which mm. I thought that was his sort of philosophy in terms of, well, if you come to my school, I'm going to train you to see and give you a tool set. And then off you go and make of it what you will kind of thing. Yeah. But in some ways, I wish I'd gone to like National Arts School or go for something here because what I didn't, I had to learn all that by watching other artists who had gone through that type of schooling. Um, because painting traditionally is only one, like it's, it's only one way of doing it. And part, the best paintings is often when you have to unlearn all that and then paint in a way, in a different way that's, that's the whole beautiful thing about contemporary painting, you know? Um, you don't have to follow any rules. And I'm still trying to shake that kind of realistic outcome of a day in the studio or that is a scaffold in terms of what's whether I've made a good painting or not. Like, there's so much more, there's so many deeper layers to painting than how it looks. And yeah. I just taking me so, it's taken me almost 20 years before I finally going, finally, I feel like I'm painting in a way that's not, doesn't have much to do with that. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people I've spoken to, it's, it sort of comes down to your personality sometimes too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And maybe part of that, I mean, part of that not wanting to let go of it is part of you yeah. in a way oh, and what painting, you're attracted and to. And the thing is you get older, you realise you've got to just paint for who you are and you're painting for you, not for anybody else. And you get better at knowing who you are by then as well. You're not pretending to be anyone else. You know your, fault, your strengths and weaknesses and you know what, what you want to paint about for yourself. Yeah. And I think you become truer. And if you are... A, you know, if you wanted to paint something hyper-realistic because you just get lost in the painting and fill it in, fill it in, fill it in, go for it. That's the thing that, that's who you are. You know, you want to put those 10 hours or 12 hours into a podcast filling a painting, don't fight it. That's just make it, own it, you know. But if you want, if you want to paint intuitively and expressively, um, that's who you are as well. So I think that's the nice thing about paintings. At the end of the day, they're mirrors. Into, uh, I'm back at the, who the artist really is, if you're being kind of honest with yourself I think well it's interesting where you took it after you I mean you did you did go back and, and you studied medicine and you actually worked as a surgeon I think were you a surgeon yeah no I surgically assisted and I still surgically assist every now and then to stay registered and because I just love I work with a beautiful surgeon and um, it's nice being part of a team yeah and I don't want to be in charge yeah I just want to be <laughs> I just want to mop the floor and sop carefully and listen to music and talk talk and gossip with other humans and help people rather than um, stare at a painting and try and wonder whether it's, you know, balance that tightrope of is it genius or is it a piece of shit, <laughs> you know, which I feel like most of the, that's the world we all live in, yeah, you know, that's, yeah. the, that's the only space you make good paintings. So it's like a circuit breaker. You go yeah, and I work. Just reach, I just, yeah, recharge back into humanity and yeah. I work with the most beautiful people yeah. and I'm very grateful to be able to do that, you know, and it's a nice... I mean, just even seeing like people are very like someone who's anesthetized. It's an it's mind-blowingly precious kind of space and vulnerability and trust, and it really it brings you back down to earth every you know, whenever I do it. I'm like, God damn, I'm lucky to be able to be in this space, you know? Yeah, because not many of us would experience that. No. Yeah. No. And I never thought of it at that as that in that way that that person is in a very vulnerable situation. Oh yeah, no, no, there's they're not only vulnerable, they're in a they're, they're in another space in their own subconscious, you know, a lot of, and you go into it knowing I might not wake up. There's all, like, it's a full-on, that's a big day of their life, you know. 
for everyone else in the theatre, it's just another day, in the, another case, another day at work. Well, that's interesting to talk about that vulnerability because I really feel like, you know, we're talking about your portraits. Um, I think it was the first time I actually ever saw your work was in 2015 in the Archibald when with that portrait of Daniel Johns, yeah. which um, I just, I was totally blown away by it. And I think it was partly because of your amazing use of oil paint, um, which you're well known for. And this is the, almost using it as a, you know, in a watercolour yeah, I think technique. by then I'd, I'd made a decision, all right, I'm going to try and let's see how thin I can paint oils. And I was pushing and I was trying to paint with a lot more medium and letting it run more. And then I started coming up with a way of, as I put each mark down, you get other brushes and take even more off. And a lot more use of rags and a lot more reductive, even on a small passage, I will paint it and then I've got about a minute or two to take even more off before it dries and, it, and then I can't touch it again. And it, so it, it keeps an energy in the surface. Um, which is good for me. It was really good for me because I'm. I just overworked the shit out of everything. Otherwise, and kill it. I killed every goddamn painting, you know. And then this. This is a way of me that, of painting. And once it becomes tacky, if I touch it, it all comes off and looks. It, it's it's ruined. So you get, you get chances to hit it, and let it dribble and let some beautiful stuff happen. And then it's it's a really good technique for my personality because it stops me from. You know, that kind of like touch, 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 and like maybe I'll try that, maybe I'll try that. There's no energy then in the surface or in the mark making if you get stuck in that. Like the best painters are the ones that go, tuk, 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 yeah. for, for me anyway. Just There's so much life in, in the mark making. Oh, look, I think that's right. And I think most people, um, when they see a work where they can see the brushwork and they can see, wow, that, that person has laid down that stroke and they left it there and they didn't overwork it. Yeah, and even if it's wrong, it's right by the fact that you didn't touch it again. That's what I, that's what I always remind myself at. I mean, I wish I could paint more incorrectly, but I'm still, I'm still trying to paint sort of Ashton in some ways, you know, deep down, because yeah. I, can't, I can't quite shake that, you know, that origin of painting inside me. But I'm well aware of it, and I can know it now, and I can use it and forget about it, and, and a lot of these paintings now are a lot more intuitive and nonsensical in terms of... That mark's not there in real life, but it's going to be there in the goddamn painting. And that's why I'm finally thinking I'm, you know, learning how to paint fine or learning how to not paint finally, you know? Yeah, right. So say six years ago, you felt like you hadn't actually broken through to... I think at the time I thought I was breaking, like, in looking back at anything, you, can, like, you look back at most of your work and you're like, oh, I could put a flame to that, I could put a flame to that, because you've moved on. And your language is probably developed, you know, hopefully a bit deeper. Mm. And, you, and you as a person, like a lot of shit's changed with me in the last five years. So I'm, lot, I'm not as tough on myself as I used to be, you know. Well, I suppose one of the main things is that you've had kids. Having kids was the best thing ever. I should have done it when I was 18, you know. <laughs> Why? I, because I guess it's not about me anymore. Yeah. It's so simple. Like I just, I could be so, I could make the worst painting in the world. My kids don't give a shit. And they were so happy when I walk in the door, you know? <laughs> and if they're crying, it doesn't matter. My paintings are irrelevant as well. My goddamn kids are crying, you know? Yeah, yeah. i got to sort it out. It takes you away from it. takes you from away it. from your mm. from yourself. You're just part of, the, you're part of something way bigger. And so there's a lot... You've got meaning in your life, no matter how exhausted you are and how much of the sort of happiness and hedonism of self um, you've lost, you gain just as much in terms of stability and meaning and something bigger than you that you're part of and there's a beauty in that you know I've never cried so much as I have in the last few years but I've never been so content in some ways and just the way kids get excited about shit like I had lost that you know I wasn't that excited if I saw a crab and <laughs> I know, you look through their eyes, don't you? look through you? their eyes a bit more and yeah. then you can start and that's got to translate somehow back into the paintings. Um, just wanted to go back again to talking about the portraiture because portraiture is actually my special interest. I don't know if you know this. I didn't know that, no. no. <laughs> I am going to get on to these beautiful works that are right beside us because this is like the main game, I think, at the moment for you is this yeah, amazing Yeah, but it's funny because in the last few shows I've always done a, put a figure work in it. Oh, 
right. Always. Yeah. I'm starting to put my figurative work into um, gallery exhibitions. And even though they're completely different genres, I think there's something really beautiful about collapsing that divide between the genres and bringing in, rather than the figure in landscape, it's a figure next to landscape. And you get that dialogue between, um, you know, an abstract op artwork versus a figurative work of a baby sleeping. There's a very powerful narrative in that. It sort of brings that human straight into straight into the um, the scaffold of the show. Yeah, yeah. But there also, I think there's a similar language there as well. Yeah. And also, it is quite a limited palette in lots of ways. Oh, it's just seven colours. Yeah, right. It's the same goddamn seven colours. I mean, <laughs> every now and then I add, try and add another one in. Are they all transparent? No, no, most of them are though. It's just the same, it's the same ones all the time. And then within that, there are just infinite... Um, combinations and you can go cold blue warm blue you can do whatever you want yeah yeah but also the other interesting thing about your portraiture is the use of the you know the white the linen I mean that's just a watercolor that's just saying that's if I was making a watercolor that's going to be my highlight is it will be the white so you build up the the painting around it gets darker and darker and darker so in some ways they're they're quite planned because you've got to if I don't leave that section of white um, you can't wipe it off and have it come through. So they are quite, like, as much as I'd like to think that I'm free and intuitive and whatever, when it comes to portraiture, I find them really stru- there's quite a lot of structure to it because if I want to leave that bit white, I'm leaving that bit white from the whole time. I'm never touching it. And I'm working and building around it. Yeah. And I suppose it's a bit like your, you know, Craig Foster portrait, um, which you did this year and got in the Archibald, um, where his beard, you know, is white. So you have to just make sure that that doesn't get touched. So it is like a watercolour approach. I think so, yeah. That's why yeah. I view it. That's, why, that's my kind of structure in terms of starting and building. Yeah. Just approach it like a watercolour and um, build it up. And on that point of the Archibald, how, do you, how have you, has that experience been for you? Because you're a four-time finalist. I mean, Archie carries so much, so much weight in some, in some circles, you know, and it's obviously great to get in. Um, there's so much exposure with it. It makes a hell of a... For some reason, the average punter at dinner party, if you say Ben the Archibald, they're like, oh, you are a serious artist, you know? Yeah, there's right. some... It carries an authority in terms of that you've been anointed, you're in. It's so powerful to have your work hung in Archive New South Wales, where as a kid my mum would take us there and that's our, that was our church in some ways. And, you know, I've spent so many years in their drawing as a teenager and then to have your own work hung with that roof above it, you know what I mean? There's yeah, a, that must have been a thrill the first time. Yeah, there's a, there's yeah. a, there's, you're like, okay, fine. And then once you're in, you, you can move past it because you've, doesn't matter if you don't get in again. And yeah, that's I see, interesting. There's all that as well. So yeah. you can move, you can just move on. And whether you get in or not, like another time, what's it, what's it really going to, like, yeah. doesn't really change anything. It's got nothing to do with your paint, like your painting practice. It's a prize to, painting celebrities so everyone can come in and judge you like do you really want to even be part of that circus yeah. I don't know how healthy it is anyway and you can people have won it people have been in it heaps of times it doesn't make doesn't give you a career the only thing that gives you a career is making good paintings every week you know yeah. working and working and working and working on your practice so if the Archibald's going to derail you from doing that don't get involved in it um, but if you can um, use it to paint someone you've always wanted to paint or use it for the, all the marketing that they have with it or just just to give some authority to the fact that you've painted for 20 years and you finally, someone finally knows who, you know, mm. what, you, what your painting style is, use it. Yeah, yeah. It's well, as simple as that. You say, I yeah. heard you say that um, uh, Jasper Knight gave you some advice about not to start the painting. Jasper's given me a lot of advice on a lot of things. <laughs> well, Jasper's a well-known painter. He is the godfather to my son for a reason. We went through primary school and high school together and when I was 26, he's the one, I, I think he was overseas at the time, I met up with him and said, I really want to be an artist. And he goes, you don't want to be an artist, Jules. I'm like, yeah, I do. I'm ready. And he's like, uh, all right, come into this. You can get, come and rent a room in our studio back in Chinatown when we get back to Australia. And, yeah, I've just painted. I painted next to him in, that, in those studios for 10 years. And we ran a gallery, ran Chalkos together and yeah. the whole lot of other um, directors as well. And that was my family for a long time. But yeah, one of his pieces of advice was start it a week out. Don't waste months on it. Just yeah. start it seven days before and do and put and, and that's a whole week of y- your practice. 
you, yeah, that's, that's true. Out of, if you're trying to make a show, that's, you're taking a whole week out of your you know, work schedule to make a painting that probably not going to get in. And you're going to feel pretty shit afterwards because whoever you painted is going to feel rejected as well. Yeah. With all that awkwardness. <laughs> is that and awkward? Of course it's awkward. Yeah. You know, I painted Fozzy the first time. We didn't get in. I told him. I'm like, we're probably not going to get in, dude. Just let me just, I just want to paint you because I think you're a legend and I want to support what you're doing. Mm. And He's a human rights activist. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, let me paint. Let's, let me have a crack at getting you in because it'd be good for you to get in. And I want more people listening to you. And we got on really well, and I painted this massive painting of him. I thought it was really, like, I thought it was a pretty damn good painting. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I remember. And it didn't get in, and, and he, I think he was a bit bummed. I'm like, Fuzzy, I told you, dude. I told you you probably weren't going to get in. <laughs> and then for the whole next year, I had it out there in the racks, and for some reason I had it poking out, and his bloody, his eye would stare at me every time I went home. <laughs> and I'm like, sorry, Fuzz, dude, I let you down. I feel like I really let him down. And then so I painted him, and the, next, the year, year rolled around, and I rang, uh, you know, I rang him up and I was like, Fuzzy, we're doing it again. I've had another idea for you. And, but luckily, we were, much better, we were much better friends then. And he used to come around here and we used to hang out a bit. And what do you think made it next, the, the next time? Um, I wasn't trying to... I, I just made a painting about him and I do it with me. The painting, I don't even know if my painting was that like, technically wowy, wowish, if that's a fucking art term, you know what I mean? But like, it was just... I just knew Fuzzy so much better. We were friends. Beej and I had gone to his, uh, you know, Lara had cooked amazing food dinners for us. So all of us were friends. There was no pressure. And I just decided to do something small and poetic. And I'd been painting. It's just, everything's chance, Marie. Everything's luck for me. Like, I'd just been painting a whole lot of my family with their eyes closed. And I realised I've done that for the last 20 years. So you're not looking back at the viewer. So you're a lot more vulnerable. Mm. It's a lot more dreamlike and mysterious and beautiful as a portrait. So I just painted a series of my family with the eyes closed, and I'm like, I'm just gonna, and I knew they were good. They, there's something about that pose that is really arresting. Either you're asleep, or you're meditating, or you're dreaming, or you're tired. I'm like, I'm just going to paint Fozzie with his eyes closed. Perfect, you know. And then he can't look at me if I don't get in. And then I was just make it small because I was busy doing a whole lot of other stuff, and I'm like, I'm just going to do it. I just one afternoon and I painted him, and I and there's just no pressure. And it was a lot more true, uh, like more beautiful, poetic work in some ways. It was just fuzzy, you know. It was beautiful too. I know um, a lot of people really loved that painting. Yeah. It was fabulous. Um, now I want to I want to fast forward now to the present because this show that you have got um, coming up at your Vu's Gallery is absolutely astonishing. Uh, the work that you've been doing lately is amazing. It is. Well, it's a combination, in my view, it's a combination of landscape work, but it's also, you know, you have purely abstract pieces, I would say, um, and these landscapes are also tending towards abstraction as well. Um, but, you know, we've just been t talking at length about your portraiture. And, of course, I have skipped over the still life. There's some yeah. absolutely beautiful still life work. But the landscapes didn't start appearing until a few years ago. Why, why is that? Is there a reason? I think there's a whole lot of reasons. Um, I remember I was, I, I think it comes back to primary school. I think I got teased by some a great artist who's, who I'm still friends with and he, and he was once teasing me saying, look, you, you can only paint landscapes, you're no good at portraits, Jules. When I was 10 years old, you know, and I think I remember going, screw you, I'm going to learn how to paint portraits. Uh, so it probably comes back from that. That's probably the origin of it. You know, some childhood trauma. No one knows that now that I think about it. Um, and so I think it, it probably started there. And then obviously, um, I think when I, in my 20s, I was wanted to, I don't know, just scared of um, being a landscape painter. Um, I grew up in the city, you know, my connection to the bush was someone was once a year, we went and lived out in Oberon for four weeks, you know. Um, and I just, and as a white male in Australia, what, it's stolen land, you know. I'm still trying to reconcile my place in that narrative and am, am I painting a land that I love beautifully that is all in us um, but it's still like it's a hard it's a hard subject whether you sort of even allowed to paint it in a way correct yeah correct so I just stayed away and also I don't want to paint it just I didn't want to make just pretty paintings of um, landscapes um, to pay the bills you know but a landscape is actually one of the nicest um, um, genres to work in because there's so much scope for abstraction in it 
you know, way more than still life, way more than um, portraits. You know, in terms of if you're going to paint a figurative work, go landscape because you can do whatever the hell you want. Um, you know, there's no necessarily object in there. So I think that was the real attraction for me. I was just sick of painting things. I wanted to paint something more, like way more or something more to do with memory and emotion. And, um, and I didn't know how, I didn't, but I still wasn't prepared just to jump straight into abstraction. Mm. Um, I kind of just grew into it. And then that, that residency was the um, start of it all. So the residency you're talking about is? It was down in Bega five years ago. Um, the Ian Dawson had teed up. And my beach and I, she was heavily pregnant, and we stayed for a month in this house on an inlet with no mobile reception. And it's one, again, it's all luck. The national parks didn't want me to use oil paint because they didn't want anything being contaminated in the, uh, in the ground there. So I just did a series of watercolours, um, just quick sketches, you know. Yeah. Um, all throughout this inlet. I just fished most of the time, to be honest. Drank beer and fished and watched and just spent a lot of time just sitting around watching tides come in and out. And, and more just, I just had time to stop and, and, and look. And, but those series of watercolours, I came back and went, I'm just going to turn each one of those into a giant formal oil painting. And that's how it all, that's how I kind of started. Yeah, right. So it, it retained in a way that that feeling of a watercolour as well. Especially the early landscapes. They would, they tried to make them look like fast watercolour sketches. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I want to describe for the um, listener just uh, like what you're doing now. And the best thing for them to do is go to the website. But for the people who are driving at the moment, I have to give them a, a bit of an idea. Um, yeah, I just want to describe one of the paintings called Slow Wave Cycle, Barriga Lake, number eight. So a lot of these paintings have got this sort of coastal landscape, um, which is in a, is a very low light. So this one that I'm talking about now is definitely like a moonlight setting, uh, very dark sort of blues. And, but when you get closer to it, um, it, it just becomes less figurative. The sky has got, you know, paint marks that don't quite belong. The clouds have like this multitude of lacy drips. And most striking of all, especially in a number of these works, they're these vertical bands or stripes that emerge in the sky. Like they're, um, in that painting there was eight. And they're quite eerie because, well, in my view, they're quite eerie because they're equidistant. So it's not something we'd find in nature, I would have thought. Well, I mean... You don't see them in nature, but I mean, I've, I've sort of, there's colour bands, so I'm sort of calling it colour banding, Yeah, is my term for it, and I've just started, I've just painting landscapes, I couldn't, someone had said, why are you painting the bands in there, I'm like, Cause just because the painting needs it, because that's how it all, I just started to just put them in there intuitively, as a way of painting space and time, and allowing you to move in and out of that space and that air. So I was trying to carve out space in um, the space between things. And then, so it started as a visual technique, it started as something that was beautiful to look at, and then it started as something that was symbolic, and it was very intuitive, but it's funny, they're actually there in real life, but we can't see them. You know how like when the sun sets, and you get the crepuscular rays, of the God's rays kind of spraying out from the clouds and yeah. that's actually that's not an optical illusion they're real beams you could fly an aeroplane around them and that's you know that's light catching dust and smoke and sea spray and sea salt and and we see them as divergent mm. they're actually parallel is that right in the same ways as you look down a hallway and you see it converge onto a vanishing point that's what's happening with those rays so they're flying past us all parallel but we only ever see them when the sun's setting behind the cloud pretty much so it's a bit of you know it's a bit of stoner logic but there is those bands connecting all of us and I've always loved that idea of what is that space between us that in between and how we connect how am I connected to you how am I connected to people I've never met how am I connected to um, nature ocean and trees you know there is that what is that thing in between all of us. Um, and then so these bands, I, in some ways, I mean, I don't want to ever, 
I hate describing what my works are about because I don't even know what they're about. And they're still a mystery to me. And I like them being a mystery. They don't, they're not answers, you know. They're something else. So I'm always going to be really careful in saying this is what they are because if someone else may see them and see them as very different things as mm. what I'm saying now and I like that. So I kind of I want them to be mysterious but at the same time, you know, it's nice to say, look, they're, they're kind of based on that concept of like, colour bands but they're also to do with rhythm and waves because I was so into like tidal waves, mainly because I was just fishing heaps, just the tidal waves and just that constant ebb and flow and all being based on the moon and how women's cycles are based on the moon and how we plant seeds are based on the moon and all these forces that, that control everything around us and all these mysterious things like childbirth, you know what I mean? Things we have got no idea about. Things like dreams, no idea about. Mm. They're all controlled by these forces that we know are there, but we kind of pretend, oh, that's just something to do with the tides, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, but it does... There's, for me, there's, there's a lot of beauty in all that space. And so they're, they're tides as well. That's the tidal flux. They're also rhythm, heartbeat rhythms. The sleep, cycle, like the sleep cycles I find fascinating. Maybe it's because I just love it when my kids have a nap. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something fucking amazing about why do we sleep. It's a form of, like, we almost die every night and we wake up again. But luckily we remembered everything beforehand, so everything's all normal. But we tap out for eight hours, you know? Yeah. And then why do we have all these sleep cycles? Why do we have slow, medium, fast wave? And then as a med student, I learned the most fascinating study where they got like 100 med students and got them to sleep each night and tested their REM sleep, I mean EEGs, and they woke them up just as they went into REM. So they still got eight hours sleep, but they never had the four or five like fast wave cycles which are normally like 10 minutes and then 30 minutes or whatever, where you actually dream. So they all had eight hours sleep, but none of the dream sequence cycles, the REM. Mm -hmm. Now, towards the end of the week, they started hallucinating during the day. And on the last night, they let them sleep right through. They went back and caught up seven times the amount of normal REM sleep. They needed to dream. It's so fascinating. That is unbelievable. And we have no idea. Why do you think we dream? Why do you think we dream? Well, isn't it supposed to be you trying to make sense of what happened in the day? That's the only explanation <laughs> we can come up with it. That's the only explanation I have for it. It's part of processing. But we need it. All we know, for, all we know as in terms of like a proper study is that we need it. Like we need to dream. I find that so beautiful. In the same way as I need to paint. You don't need to know what it's about. It's just something that makes everything okay. It's a processing. Yeah, that's like it's a so balancing interesting. of everything. So in a way, now that you've said all of that, I now see this painting totally differently and I see those bands totally differently because I saw it more of an artificial type of computery type thing. It is as well because my printer is so shit. Sometimes <laughs> I started printing and, I lo- and this is the other thing. I reckon bad reference is the best reference ever. In fact, probably no reference is the best reference. But my computer, you know how that's... Fires out those lines here and there. Yeah. Makes no sense, like a green line. I started putting them in some of my paintings a while back. Like I think this mark is just based on those images and those these kind of like glitches. So there is there is still a digital um, sort of language in there and that glitchy, that romantic kind of glitches. So there is they are kind of digital in some ways. Well, we don't usually, you know, you was, I've heard you say that you're unashamedly romantic about these paintings. Oh, yeah, now I just own it. I'm like, since I've had kids, I'm like, fuck it, I'm making paintings that are incredibly beautiful. But I think love is the sharpest tool in the box to make any change or to make someone think differently. You know, you can scream at someone all you want, but normally it just sends them away, you know? Yeah. Love is a really powerful um, tool. And same, same with beauty. And you can start a dialogue. You can start someone thinking differently. Um, you can slow someone's breathing down if you paint a certain way, I reckon. You know, you can, you can stop them. Mm. And so I'm starting to use that as a, um, to my advantage, I suppose. Yeah. The other interesting thing about your landscapes is that they're vertical format. 
they're not horizontal. Is there is that a conscious decision? Yeah, I've never. I don't think I've done a uh, landscape landscape um, because I find them really hard to paint. I just they don't feel right. You know, if you look at one amazing Japanese prints and stuff of landscapes in Chinese, you just travel up and down them, up and down them, and then if you want to exhibit a lot of them, you exhibit them in series. And there's something about compositionally, it's all cut through. So you've, you can anchor off a horizon line and then travel. I just find the eye, you just travel up and down. And so for the vertical banding, color banding that I'm doing, it's just, it's, it has to be portrait. So I think there's a whole lot of reasons, but the, for me mainly it's the composition because it cuts it up and turns it into an abstract before you even begin. Totally. And that leads me to talking about these more abstract works where, I mean, if we, we could almost just remove the landscape and just look at that banding, some of these works anyway, where, mm. where there's the banding and then that's just, that's the painting itself. And so that's a type of optical illusion in a way. Yeah, op art colour fields, kind of, that's the, it's into that genre now. Um, but I'm really into that. It's so minimal and I think at my core I'm pretty minimal, kind of human and not noisy, not very noisy. And there's something about taking completely that um, subject away and that narrative hook, removing that, there's so much more space for um, an emotional narrative in those works for me and more to do with feeling and memory and um, mystery and dreams and space, all that kind of beautiful stuff mm. because you're not looking at anything. So. You, You've got nothing to look at, so I, in my mind, I'm like, well, there's nothing to see, but there's something maybe more to feel. That's, I think that's why I'm into them at the moment, yeah. and I think that's why they're powerful on a very, on a, in a very subtle way. Oh, you know? definitely. Oh, I think they're extremely powerful. Do you see, do you think in terms of light, like are you trying to achieve that, or is that just a byproduct of the way you're going about it? A luminosity, I suppose, yeah. is, is what I'm talking yeah. about. There is that luminosity. I mean, there is that. It's more just that memory of like just as the sun disappears or just as the sun comes up. I mean, this show's called The Small Hours, so it's about that period, you know, between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. just before the sun comes up, that kind of new day and that kind of hope that things are going to get better and that stillness when everyone else is asleep but you're thinking, you know, or waiting. And so there's that nice, that's that beautiful in-between period, between night and day. A question that I should ask more often in my interviews, because I think listeners want to hear this, um, is who your influences are or have been over the years. Um, who have you looked to for inspiration? Or it's a good question. And I mean, I'm just always really honest is the best answer for me. I don't. I deliberately don't want to look at a lot of other artists' work overseas or read too many magazines because it just derails me from my own fucking journey. And I'm having enough trouble. I've got enough questions going on in here. I've got enough ideas. I just don't really... And I look at other people's work and I'm like, God, they're so fucking good. And they're so amazing. And what they're doing is so, taking just such amazing risks and their colour and this. And, I, and I'm like, why do I even bother? It, it can take away... Yeah, your confidence, in a way. Yeah, and just the fact that I can only do what I can do to my best skills and my own training. And I need to run my own race and I need to build my own language. And looking at other people's work, does it in, unless it's inspiring you and giving you lots of ideas and you can take things from different... Which you do, and take them and double down onto, onto your work, that can be very helpful. But a lot of the time, you can sit there reading art mags and go and just I don't know if it's always so healthy mm. and I've, I'm surrounded by enough amazing painters that I've got enough inspiration from seeing how how and they work so differently than I do but I'm sure I take stuff away from um, their approach and their their process yeah. um, I've always I've always been around a whole lot of painters um, and I would have to say they're probably my influence is not just in how they paint, but just their, their practice and how dedicated they are. Like, they're my real, like, I'm never very alone in here because someone, even on a Sunday, everyone's always goddamn working. Yeah. Or not even working, just here prepping or just in the space. Mm. Like, there's, that's probably the biggest inspiration for me is 
that dedication to their own craft. I don't really need, you know, to go to museums to be reminded that it's, it should just, you know, you're making paintings for yourself at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, I want to get on to the, um, the, the process that is involved in making these works because firstly I should point out, I mean it's probably clear to people that they are very serene, they're calming I find these works, but the process involved in making them would surprise most people because Karen Black, who actually has the studio next to you, is a very well-known um, painter here in Sydney, she mentioned in a talk that you gave that she's next door to you and she can hear you working and it sounds like you're playing basketball or something because it's so energetic and it's so physical. And you've actually recorded yourself as you're painting. Yeah, for this show I've made a sound work to accompany one of the paintings and it's an audio file of that painting being made in the 70, 68 minutes of that session. Um, it's a simple colour fade in, when you stand in front of it. But the audio is an insight into the process to arrive at that stillness. And that process is not still. <laughs> I couldn't believe and it. There is a lot of um, heavy breathing, grunting, swearing. It's so, it sounds so I almost lose the paintings half the time because I'm smearing and blending. And then as it's getting tacky, I'm dragging and then blending again. And it's just huge brushes and lots of rags. It is scrubbing and scrubbing all at the right time to kind of have finished up with this very calming effect. And it's, it's sort of, the process is probably just as interesting as the end point. If, if you're sort of stuck with a, a painting, you feel like it's not working, is there any, do you use any tricks that, you know, to, to rethink it? Um, would you put it away for a while? Would you turn it upside down? Yeah, up on the floor, upside down. Put it, yeah, I put them away, but I pull them out and they're still shit. <laughs> um, that doesn't, there's no, but does they the don't problem, magically get better in the in the Yeah, racks. right. But does the problem become more obvious when it comes out? Yeah, but the way I paint is so thin and mm. so much to do with the linen coming through. If the problem's there, problems ain't going away. I'm, I'm only covering it up. Whereas I've kind of, the best paintings are the ones that, um, work early and they the bits that are left or the bits that are luminous are bu buzzing already. Though I have reworked a few, but normally I just start again, just cut it up and start again. Yeah, right. So and would you cut it, you mean you'd cut up the... Well, I don't, I've stopped stretching. I'm too old and lazy to stretch properly now. Um, and it's actually really good advice that someone gave me. And obviously it's very hard in your early career because everything's so goddamn, all the materials are so expensive. I'd always stretch my own canvases. And I used to work in a framing shop, so I kind of, I can do it. But then you treat the canvas, it's so precious because you bloody, you, you sweated while you were doing it, you know? And then the best advice I got was someone said, just bite the bullet and order 10. And if one's bad, they're not, they're just, if one's bad, you just start another one, you know? And that is, then the canvas isn't precious. It's what you're painting on it is precious. And if that ain't going well, have another crack. Yeah. And I, so I, I normally just start again. So some, one of a few of these paintings, I'd paint and try some things in the, try some sections that didn't, I could never resolve. And I would just start the painting again, and then that section I'd have a better crack at. Um, that's my. Everyone has a different process. Yeah, yeah, and I, right. I know a lot of painters just paint over the top, and they use that surface underneath to give amazing texture and. Um, and I, lo I love seeing those paintings as well. But for the way I paint, it's too thin and it's too much about smearing yeah. and taking off to really, I, I don't know. Yeah. What about the linen? Do you have a preference for a, a very uh, a smooth surface? Oil primed. It has to be oil primed Belgian linen. Okay. What's the difference between like an acrylic? Oil and acrylic. Primed? Well, acrylic's going to seep in. So you normally have to layer it more. If it's oil, because it's oil on oil, it's like a bit like painting, like think of it as painting on glass you can paint a very thin layer on it and it's not drying in. Yeah. So acrylic painting on acrylic canvas is a different, different things happen when yeah. you put paint on it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's the biggest, that's that. the biggest trick I have is yeah. just to paint oil on oil. Cause and then you can, yeah. then you can smear if you think about it. Like that's so all my portraits, the paint is actually kind of spread rather than um, built. What about um, mediums? 
Um, Galkid is the is the best. But it's funny, I change. I used to use, but it's just so toxic. I shouldn't. I don't want to say anything about brands on, you know, on podcast. But I poured it into a plastic cup once, and it just ate the cup. And they say you should be using masks and respirators while you paint with it. And obviously, for some of the oil paints, you need to as well. But I don't know. I can't paint a respirator. And this they've yeah, come out with hot. this. The, the Gamblin's made this product, Galkid, which is heavy, so it doesn't evaporate. So you can leave, even if you leave the ga- the gambl- the terps overnight, it's the same level when you come back in the next morning. Oh, right. Yeah, so all, a lot of artists, we've all moved on to Gamblin. But that, every medium reacts differently and dries differently. Try, I just re- relearned how to paint a different way. And it's good, it made me paint differently. I did want to talk about studio life and also just whether you had a routine. Like... Um, do you find with ki- with kids now it's probably a my bit routine's pretty dictated by by <laughs> those uh, those little ones. You know, you would remember all about the got the windows. I've got a window between here and here. You know? Yeah, exactly. But my wife Beach is very supportive, and she and often we sort of I say like that two nights a week I need to be able to stay back and paint. I'm either going to be I could be finished by four or I could be here till midnight. I just don't know. And it's very hard to make a painting, I find, if I know I've got to leave in three hours or four hours or five hours because there's no... You end up, if you rush at any point, you can... Uh, it's just not a nice... It's not an enjoyable process. So you would wait for those days? Oh, they're, my gonna... big, they're my painting days. Yeah. And then the other days, there's, there's so much other stuff you can do um, in terms of working on older works or sections that you know you can do in six hours sitting. You know what I mean? So you just get better. Like all parents, you just you know your windows yeah. and you work. And in fact, in fact, I think I was talking to Phil James, a mate of mine, years ago. And I was saying it's actually really good having... Um, kid, one of the best things about having kids is it forces to walk away mm-hmm. from, this, from the canvas because daycare... I can't leave my kids in daycare all night long. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then so there's... A, it's so good... If, to be able to go, all right, let's do this. And then you, you just have to walk away. Mm. And sometimes I'd come back and go, oh, I'm going to leave that. That's actually really good. And you start doing things that you think you're going to paint over the next day that you don't. And so there's like everything. It's all restrictions are sometimes um, the biggest gifts in terms of something more creative definitely so i don't i don't i don't get angry the fact that i've got less hours in here in some ways it's better because i'm more uh i'm more effective while i'm in here and i and i'll paint and take a risk and just walk away and see how it is and i don't have time to go spend all night long correcting and killing it overworking it. overworking is is a really it's your enemy yeah yeah especially with these works i could imagine because you've you've got that transparency that you want to keep alive yeah. uh, they're just absolutely beautiful what about deadlines do you prefer working to a deadline well you need to if you don't have a deadline you're not going to do anything um, but the best thing like this show for example I've been working on for 14 months and had no other projects and a lot of these paintings were just done I didn't even know whether they were going to go in the show or where they were going to go um, and that's been the first time in my life where I haven't had a show so that I've been working towards. This was more to do with a body of work that I just wanted to paint and, exp- and enjoy and try different things. And at the end of it, I've kind of gone, I want that one, that one, that one. They, they're, the, they're the ones I want For out the of the show. series. Yeah, yeah. Um, Is to, that hard to, to choose? To let out of the st- Oh, you know. It's not hard to choose. Yeah. You, know, you know when, you've, when something has that X factor. That you probably and they're normally the ones that you know if you tried to do them again you couldn't do them. Mm. If things go down on them for whatever reasons, and they have some bit of magic in them, mm. and every now and then I'm like, oh, I want to do that section again. I can never do it again. I can never get the drips to do what I wanted because a lot of it is that first time. Let's try that. Let's try that. Or getting so angry at it, you go, I'm gonna get the drags out and chirps the hell out of it, and then in the process of destruction. This is normally where most of this nice stuff happens. You're like, oh, that didn't work. And you're like, fuck that. I'm just going to take the whole thing off. In taking it all off, whatever's left or some of it, that's, where, that's when it all starts cooking again. So it's just, painting's weird. It's not linear. And 
it can drive you to the point of insanity and sometimes you've got to almost be angry at the painting for it to have anything beautiful in it have the love you know it's a very mm. weird it's yeah. a you i mean you'd understand it's a creative space is a unusual headspace to to spend the day in yeah well talking about that sort of you're talking more or less about being in the flow as well do you feel there are sort of certain conditions that you need in the studio to 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 achieve that state yeah. coffee privacy pri like doors shut always um and uh, music oh you have to have music oh yeah i can't silence is way too noisy i can't paint to silence probably get <laughs> i'll probably get bored and then i never get into any i can't access into that i'm thinking too much so headphones headphones or if I'm here by myself, as loud, that's the beauty of being in the industrial area, as loud as I can get. The cheese factory and the brothel next door do not complain when I play music loudly. Oh, so what sort of music? Oh, that's a... That's oh, no, you don't a, want no, to go no, down no, that no, track? No, all kinds. I'll go, it depends what I, what I need, you know? There's a lot of... I switch between the genres from folky, indie, Afrobeat a lot, um, grime, you know? It depends. It depends. It depends um, on deep your house, mood, deep, I presume. Yeah, like electronic, like Nicholas Jars of go-to. Um, just something, just something to get flick my brain into this kind of. I think it's got to do with the psych, like rhythms, you know, mm. and so that speed. So I use music a lot for either to slow down or speed up. Well, also, I suppose you don't want to be distracted by other people that are doing... Or they might be on the phone or something like no, that. No, yeah, exactly. So once you get the headphones in, you can then tap out for five hours and nothing else exists. Yeah. You know, yeah. mobile's off yeah. and you can just... That's a very beautiful time. I've heard you say that um, COVID's been great because you don't have to go to your opening. <laughs> Do you find that stressful? Yeah, I don't. I, I, my paintings are already at the opening. What? I don't need to stand in front of them, get in the way. You know what I mean? Or say something stupid and then ruin the fact that people might actually get something out of them. What are you? What? Are, why? Why does the artist need to be there? You know? So you're more. Would you see yourself as an introvert? Of course. Yeah. 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 I'm. This is. I'm happy here. Like. Yeah. The exhibition. Oh, the exhibition is just intense. I'm too tall. So I'm awkward. <laughs> I want to get the hell out of there. I suppose you're at the centre of attention. It's like having everyone wants to talk to you and then you just sort of have to deal with... Yeah, did with... you enjoy your wedding? You know yeah, I mean? yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's sort of like always, trying to smile. Someone, someone else's party is always normally better than your own party. <laughs> that's, my, that's my experience. You don't have to organise, you don't have to invite anybody. You just get yeah. to turn up and have fun and get out of there. Is there going to be an opening? Um, I think so, yeah. I don't know. We're going to have a few talks. I mean, COVID's still throwing everything around in terms yeah. of numbers. And, and it's not like the old days where you can just um, try and make it as big and as much fun as possible. Yeah. Which is, I kind of like that because the, I like going to see exhibitions when there's no one there, you know? Are you going to see the work or are you going to catch up with everybody? It's true. It's a different experience, isn't it, to when there's all the drinks and everyone talking. And actually, everyone's just chatting to each other. They're not looking at it anyway. Correct. You know? Correct. So, um, yeah, that's, yeah, it's so more that's, of a party so type it's thing. It's a party. Yeah. And it's a celebration. The thing I like about it is, is it's the one time I get to see a lot of artists and other people outside the community, you know, or old friends and stuff I haven't seen for ages. And yeah. There is a little bit of... You get to catch up together. Yeah, yeah. Which is why weddings are fun. Well, Jules, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure being in your studio and seeing these amazing works. I can't wait to see your show. Thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure as well. What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jules Ma. Go to the website for links to people and things we talked about in this episode and for details of his upcoming show. Thank you so much for listening today and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. It's just asking questions. That's all I ever do each day in here is go, well, what if I, how do I double down on that? How do I make that more poetic? How do I make that more ambiguous? It's just question mark after question mark. What if I tried that? That's the fun. 